This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast from Clay Temple Media. Join hosts Glenn and Brandon as they lead you on a guided tour through the works of SF master Gene Wolfe, author of the Book of the New Sun. Learn more over at claytemplemedia.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 328 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is YouTube star Hank Green. In 2007, he launched the popular Vlogbrothers YouTube channel along with his brother John. Since then, Hank has been involved with various projects, including the SciShow series of educational YouTube videos and the annual Project for Awesome charity event. He also plays in a nerd-punk band called The Perfect Strangers, and is one of the founders of VidCon, the world's largest conference celebrating online video. Ans will be speaking with him today about his debut novel, An Absolutely Remarkable Thing. And today's show is brought to you by the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast from Clay Temple Media. And here's a description of the show. It says, The Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast is a podcast book club reading of the works of SF master Gene Wolfe author of the classic future science fantasy epic The Book of the New Sun, dozens of other novels, and hundreds of short stories. Each episode, Glenn and Brandon talk about a short story or novel chapter, discussing the themes, puzzles, and illusions. They always recap the story, so you don't have to read along to enjoy the discussion, but they also host an online forum for devoted readers. They've just started the fifth head of Cerberus, Wolf's masterpiece about cloning an identity, and they'd love for you to join them. So if you enjoy robots and theology... Dying Earths and Generation Starships, and Unreliable Narrators, check out the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast over at claytemplemedia.com. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Hank Green. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much. Okay, and so your debut novel is called An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, and it says online that you've had the idea for this since you were in college. Is that right? Uh, no. Where does it say that? <laughs> <I've>... <laughs> it's all lies. Uh, I just found a website. It says, even though Hank was already approaching his 40s when he first sat down to write his debut novel, the author first began toying with the idea for an absolutely remarkable think in college. Although, oh, it says an absolutely remarkable think. So maybe this is not the most reliable website. <laughs> or maybe that's – is that a different book? I don't know. Yeah, that's a different one. That was, a, that was one that I didn't end up writing. <laughs> uh, it also says you had a strange dream. Is this all just made-up stuff? That's, that is true. I did have a strange dream. Um but it had nothing to do with the book. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, uh, I had a, I had a, the right, the process of writing a book for for me turns out to be coming up with very scene like scenes that I like, and then trying to connect them together, and hoping that I can get as many of them into the book as possible, and then being very sad when certain ones don't get in. But there was definitely a scene that that literally was a dream I had that I thought was so interesting and cool that. I could write a book around it. And it turned out that that wasn't true. I needed some other elements before that became true. But um, but yeah, that was a, a very good seed. I'm always looking for creative seeds. I mean, is it a dream that would be interesting to talk about? Or would it be one of those dreams that doesn't really make any sense to talk dreams, about? Dreams are always boring. But the more important thing is that th this dream would be a pretty big spoiler. But for people who have read the book, I will say that the dream involved grape jelly. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and so it says you uh, initially considered doing this as a graphic novel? I did, yeah. I, I was um, sleeping in my in-law's guest bedroom and, uh, and, and typing out 
uh, like like panel descriptions, and I was like, how would you do this? Like, because I've all I love graphic novels, and I thought it would be very cool to be a person who had written one. The and I think that it would. I still think that it would be a good graphic novel. I think it would take a very different form. And you know, like in you know, the first hundred pages of the textbook happened in the first like, you know, three pages of the of the graphic novel as I was writing it. But like, it turned out to be an extremely effective way of outlining. Um, before I knew what outlining was. So why did you decide not to do it as a graphic novel? I think mostly I realized that it would be uh. Like that, that I was waiting on a thing, you know, when you're trying to create something and you're like, okay, well, I'll work on it when I find or when, like when this, when X or Y happens. And I was waiting to like find a perfect collaborator because I'm not going to draw a graphic novel. Uh, I do not have that skill and have not invested any time in the creation of that skill. And I talked to a few friends who do that and they were like, I'm very busy and, uh, my career is doing just fine. Thank you very much. Hmm. Um, and that makes perfect sense. So there was part of me that was like, why would I even expect that a person who has that level of skill would collaborate with me on this? And then the other part was like, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for this thing to happen to make the story. And I need to not do that. I need to just take the path of least resistance and do and make the thing with the tools that I have at at my disposal right now. Is this true that you were reading Frank Herbert's Dune sort of as you were writing the book? Yeah, I did. I I read Dune really carefully while I wrote this book. And I also read like some mystery novels really carefully while I wrote the book. Dune is not a mystery novel, though it does have some some mysterious elements. Um, but the thing that I the, the thing that I was really focused on when when reading Dune, which is a book that I read as a young person, um, was like what what are those what is that thing that i that i found when when reading it that like paul had this opportunity and a, even obligation and even like destiny to become so powerful and so you know you know deified and why how did frank herbert make it clear to me how much Paul wasn't just conflicted about that. He was, he despised it. He was terrified of it. He was like, he was destroyed by it. He like, that, um, was, was such a important part of like this sort of, like, there's a lot of stories about like the chosen one, but like seeing how negatively impacted Paul was by it, like that really affected me. And that was something that I wanted to understand how, how he did that. And, and how like and how he made me so empathetic and also like brought me into and made me want to be that person. Yeah, now that now that you mentioned that I can definitely see how that had the effect on how you wrote your protagonist. Um yeah. I want to come back to that cuz that that deals with stuff a little bit later in the book, but just on this um unreliable website I came across, I was sort of <laughs> suspicious of this thing, but it says um uh, Hank looked to his fans for help opening up a Patreon account and promising to write I a chapter for every that. dollar that was donated. I did. Nope. No. Close, close, but not quite there. Just like all good internet journalism. I was just, um, I was suspicious because then someone <laughs> just gives you a $20 bill and you're committed yeah, to writing like, a whole book. I got to write a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, it was once a month. I was trying to deliver a chapter once a month. And, uh, and I did that sort of as a beta reader thing. I, and I found it to be 
a little useful, but also like a lot of input from people who were not actually experts, um, who were like, you know, like giving, giving me things to do that I was like, no, that's a terrible idea. And like, sure. Like that, like, I don't know why I wouldn't think like none of these people were professional writers, but like mostly what I was looking for was like, I wanted your fan theories because this is something that I love. I love having fan theories and exploring fan theories. So the idea that someone might have a fan theory about something that I made is extremely exciting. Uh, so I wanted that. And I didn't get any. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted uh, I wanted people to tell me they thought it was good. And I didn't get that so much because people felt like that's what we, that wasn't what we were doing. We weren't having like a fan experience. We were having like a writer's group. And uh, and so that was part of the problem. But I did find that it was inspiring and did push me to write more um, and and. Like I, I had this obligation to an audience, which is the thing that in my internet video career has been the reason why I've made so many dang videos. And so I like having that obligation did push me to write a bunch. And then it pushed me to get to a point where I realized that there were a bunch of problems early in the book and had to rewrite a bunch of stuff. Um, so I stopped doing it when I realized that I was going to have to start over from the beginning and then I shut it down when I realized that anybody could sign up and read parts of my book that would eventually actually be published as a book. <laughs> it's funny because, you know, I went back and listened to your interview on the James Altucher podcast. Oh, wow. And toward wow. the end of that, he asked you if you sort of apropos of nothing, if you think you'll ever write a book. And you said that since your brother John had written books and been so successful at it, you felt sort of insecure about sort of um trying to measure up to that or something and i thought yeah. that was kind of an interesting dynamic I, yeah what i felt i think and i can't i can't speak for former me but i think what i felt was like um not so much maybe it was a measuring up but but like i'm very i, I was very afraid of like john reading the book because you know there's this thing when you give somebody a, a creation of yours that you know that if they think it's bad, they're probably going to have to lie to you about it. And it's just a, it sucks for them. And so like, I, I was almost more nervous for John than I was for myself when I first sent him the book, because I'm like, if he doesn't like this, which like, sometimes you don't like a book, even if it's really like lots of people like it, but some people don't. If he doesn't like this, it's just going to like suck for him. And it's going to suck for me too. Um, so that was part of it. And, and also like, there was a moment when John was so in the public eye after the fault in our stars and the movie was coming out that, um, that I felt like it might look a little bit like I'm trying to write his coattails and, and like, to some extent, like if that is a, a, a thing that, that, it, that exists, like it was easier for me to get a meeting with a agent or, um, you know, publishers might've been more excited because there's more name recognition or whatever. Like, that's good, but I'm glad to have had it happen after Turtles All the Way Down, which was a good book that did fine instead of The Fault in Our Stars, which was a good book that did, like, ridiculous, like, way over the top, like, the way that no books are successful. <laughs> it's just funny in a way how we sort of compare ourselves to people just based on sort of physical proximity oftentimes. So I was thinking about, you know, yeah. when, I, when I was in high school, I was, um, I was always the best sort of artist um, in my school. And then there was this new kid who came and he was better than me. And he, um, he was taking lessons with a professional comic book artist and stuff. And I just looked mm -hmm. at his drawings and I was like, I could, you know, he's better than me. I give up. I guess this isn't my thing anymore, you know? 
Just because yeah. I happened to be at the high school with that kid, you know? Yeah, whereas, like, you knew that there were other artists better than you in the world. It's just that none of them were going to your high school. Well, I, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I, this is back before the internet, so I think you were, like, oh. way, way less aware of, <laughs> of who else was out there in the world. You know, you're like, yeah. well, I'm the best artist, to, you know, my, in my age bracket that I'm aware of, yeah. so I must be pretty right. good, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, and I do, like, it. it it's interesting to look back and, and see how you know, those little things can affect, can affect creation and, and like how we imagine ourselves is, is more, is oftentimes more important than how, like, than, than reality of how good we are at something. Yeah. And it's just, you know, I just, it's so weird looking back on it now. And I'm like, if I had just, if that was something I cared about, you know, who cares what anyone else is doing? If I just focus yeah. on it, you know, you can t- make it work, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, the thing that I know about that I definitely know about art from having artist friends is that you don't get good because you're good. You get good because you draw a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so why don't you tell us just what's the book about? What's sort of the, the elevator pitch? Uh, sure. Uh, hopefully it's a fairly long elevator ride. I, <laughs> uh, so, so April is a young woman who's working at a job that she hates in New York city. And after like a all hands on deck crisis, she's going home at two thirty in the morning and she stumbles across this big, 10 foot tall weird robot sculpture and she decides to give the artist some credit by calling it out and making a video about it so she calls her friend andy and they make a video together and she uploads it to youtube and then wakes up the next day at noon finding that the video has gone viral both because she is charming but also because um there are 64 of these robots in cities all over the world and no one knows where they came from and so lots of people have Lots of opinions. And then because April is sort of being asked to have opinions about this, she does a lot of research and then starts to find other clues about this mystery. And that plus her ambition leads her down a path to becoming a bit of a, you know, political pundit slash thought leader slash internet celebrity. And, uh, and she has to deal with that and it kind of destroys her and her relationships. <laughs> So and now, also it's fun <laughs> so, so now this robot is described as looking like a transformer wearing a samurai wearing yeah. samurai armor where did that uh image come from uh i think it came from i don't know like all of mecha robot fiction and just being a fan of it um and and also like what would something look like if it were gonna have an like make an impression on people and try to i don't know tr- like Oh gosh, I think that there are a number of things in creation. So, so I just tried to rationalize it there for, for about 10 seconds. <laughs> and then I, I think that honestly, sometimes you set conditions and you work within them. And, uh, and so sometimes I have like, there are parts of what I'm writing that I'm like, this is malleable and I can change this. And there are other parts that I'm like, I have created the world. And if I let this be something that could be different, it's too many options. And so I'm just going to like solidify that, save it a- as, and like, and just do it in pen. And then that has to be a condition that I work around. And so honestly, like that was just like, I wrote it and I was like, okay, that is one thing that I'm not going to change. And I'm not even going to think about why it's just going to be. And so that there, there are a number of things like that, but yeah, re- that is one of them. 
Yeah. You know, I read this article one time where it was saying that for a lot of kids who grew up in the 80s, that Optimus Prime was like a surrogate father figure. Uh, <laughs> do you have any yeah. kind of like deep connection to Transformers or uh, mecha robots like that? I was, I mean, I was a big Transformers fan when I was a kid. I had a very good dad, so I didn't need Optimus there for me um, in that way. But I, um, yeah, I, I also, um, you know, I've been a big fan of of various mecha stuff. I, I, I am obsessed with Neon Genesis Evangelion. And so I, I almost picture Carl more like those mecha robots than I do like a Transformer. But like, I also kind of wanted it to be a pretty sparse description to let people picture their own thing. So you mentioned that the, your main character, April, becomes sort of a, an internet celebrity. And a lot of the book deals with that and it, to, to an extent that it's almost would be a pretty good handbook for, you know, what to do if you become, suddenly become an internet celebrity. And I was just curious if that was sort of like, was that something you were conscious of early on or ever? Or did you think of it as a guide for, you know, aspiring internet celebrities or anything? I didn't think of it so much as a guide as I hope this is useful. And I, and I did think about that. I have a lot of friends. So I, I started to have like notoriety in my like late twenties, early thirties when I first started to like, like the first time someone like recognized me in public was probably when I was 29 years old. And, uh, and it, whereas a lot of my friends, this happened in their teens or, or early twenties and, and like it was sort of their first job, you know, was being a famous person without any of the infrastructure of like, you know, n normal famous person life because this was all so new um, and, and how difficult that was. And, but also how like you can't complain about it because like everybody wants the thing you have. So that, um, that, that, that did affect me. And, and I did, you know, like part of, part of the writing of this book was like thinking about the mistakes that, my that I or my friends have made or thinking about like the good parts of our lives that we have been given because of this. But part of it is like, this is the thing that is going to be more common. And so both as people who might become famous um, and as people who are like, might want to be famous and as people who are interacting with famous people, because like now all the barriers are down so you can tweet at me and I'll see it. And if you're really mean, then I'll probably feel bad. Like, how do we treat this? Because it's new and we don't know how to treat it yet. So I did kind of want people to read who read, read this to come away with some like, I might be better at this now, this relationship between what no matter where you are, if you're just like if you're friends with a person who is, has some public notoriety, if you interact with them on the Internet, just because everybody's on the internet or if you are one of those people or if you're one of their therapists or if you like start dating one like like a little bit of nuance and complexity there is probably not bad now in the book april lays out this five-tier system for how famous somebody is is that something that you came up with yourself or did that come out of conversations with people or that that was april's idea uh uh, as I was, I was, when I was writing it. I was like, "This would be a good Vlogbrothers video," and then I was like, "But it's April's though. That would be plagiarism." <laughs> um, so, and it was really helpful for me. Uh, it was like, "Oh, I like no one has explained this to me," and 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 I and like, I don't know why. 
but maybe because like we don't need to ex- we didn't need to examine fame as much when it was a less common thing but i really do feel like fame has fractured and now there are like lots of people who are dealing with low or high um, like levels of notoriety and so i i think that we need systems to deal with that more um and yeah and and hopefully like in in general, I think that we need a lot of new tools to deal with the new world that we're in. Um, and we are, you know, like starting in maybe 2014, really realizing how um, how many tools we need to build uh, for for this next era that we're entering, and how you know how susceptible a lot of our systems were to manipulation and uh, and bad action. Well, right. So on that subject, there's a character in the book called Peter Petrowicki, who's sort of mm-hmm. April's internet nemesis. Do you want to talk about that character? <laughs> yeah. I mean, interestingly, I, I ended up feeling even sympathetic about him, though I did not write him to be sympathetic. And I also wrote him at a time when he felt like way over the top. So when I first created that character in like 2014, 2015, I was like, oh, there's, I'm like putting way too, like this I'm putting way too much stank on this. He's too <laughs> evil. And now I'm like, oh, he's like hackneyed and boring. Um, so the world caught up with that character. Uh, and yeah. And so I, I, uh, I definitely based him on a lot of professional arguers on the internet. And I think that it's like very interesting to me to see um, that job become a thing and also that you can't really interact with them unless you yourself become that if you you yourself take on that job and that makes that job multiply um and and then it almost feels like we have all been asked to become pundits and that that every time something happens like twitter is like so what's your opinion on this and I'm like, I mean, could I not? And they're like, no, we need <laughs> to know your opinion on this. So I like part part of this discussion is like me wanting to outline that it's not just people with big followings. It's everyone. We are all invited into this into this conversation. And that's partially good. I think that it allows for cultural mutation. I think it allows for us to understand perspectives and situations of people who are not like us. But I think it also like it it makes us all feel like tools in a war rather than like people. And we see other people as just tools in a war. And so we do not treat them like people. I thought there were two observations about Peter in the book that were really interesting. And one is that he's sort of a like journalist is the best word we have for this kind of person. <laughs> yeah. but, but he doesn't do any research. You know, he just sort yeah. of reads the headlines and shoots off the cuff some angry uh, thing where you know if you just read the article maybe it would answer the, the question but instead you give a 30 minute rant about about it just based on the headline you read and mm-hmm. then also that she meets him in person and he's completely calm and reasonable uh which is this yeah disconnect from how he <laughs> how he is on the internet uh-huh because that's how it works that's how that's how we are on the internet we're like i'm not in a public space you're not a real person i'm shouting i'm shouting i'm so mad and i'm gonna call you names and i'm gonna like or create organized hate campaigns around you. But then when you're in real life, you're like, well, one, you're not in the space where it's just your fans who will sit through your two hour long videos. Uh, it's like, like on in that space, like it's just 
And then when you're like when you're brought into like a new studio, you have to take into account the different audience that you have. And so you're like the way that you communicate is thus suddenly completely different. And that's very weird and jarring for people who have watched one of those two hour long videos from a professional arguer. And then you see them show up on TV and you're like, why are you on TV? And then you listen to them and you're like, oh, because you're like, you know, pretty bland, like your perspectives here seem pretty reasonable, but then you're going to go back to the internet and you're going to be like super weird and xenophobic and you want to build a wall across the Sahara Desert. Like, it's weird. I mean, there's a lot in the book where April goes on these uh, TV news shows. Have you done that? Have you done the sort of legacy media TV circuit stuff? Mm -hmm. I've done some legacy media stuff. I've done it mostly for um, uh, some stuff for VidCon where I'm doing VidCon promotion and then uh, some stuff for – uh, I, I am a spokesperson for Emerson Electric, which is an engineering company, and I like help them like with their message to get kids interested in study, studying science. Um, so I've done a lot of traditional media through that relationship. Uh, so yeah, I've, I've I've done it, but not in the like go and argue with someone way. It's just given me an insight on how those arguments actually function. <laughs> April says in the book that when you go on these late night talk shows, oftentimes they'll tell you what questions they're going to ask and they'll even like write jokes for you to say. I never knew. Uh -huh. that. Yeah, that that information comes from from people I know who've been on late night talk shows. I have not been on a late night talk show and kind of hope to never because it looks terrifying. Well, yeah, and it's just, you know, you're on for like, you know, you wrote a book and then, and then you have four and a half minutes to talk about it. And it just seems yeah. like it's so frustrating uh -huh. for me. So, yeah. That's why I started a yeah. podcast because I was always like, no, I want to, I want an hour with that author, not four minutes, you know. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and so, actually, speaking of of authors and books, I thought one thing I, uh, yeah, one thing I thought was interesting was, um, yeah, so so April acquires this um, this talent agent, uh, Jennifer Putnam, who mm -hmm. actually, parenthetically, you say all or she says all talent agents are assholes. How uh, <laughs> accurate is that? I mean, I have. I have an I have multiple agents. I have a book agent and I have a movie to book agent who I have not given any license to do anything yet because I am terrified of movies. And I have I work very closely with an agent for VidCon uh who does a lot of our ad sales and and professional relationship management and and I'm very good friends with a lot of agents and they I gave them this book to be like what do you think? And some of the like more and and even as I was writing it, I was having dinner with with an agent friend of mine, and I was like, "So here are the two things that as probably hopefully this isn't too spoilery. Here's two things that like the agent in my book does that is like kind of dastardly and underhanded. Are they realistic?" And I told them, and he was uh, they. There were two of them. Um, they were like, "Yeah, no, absolutely. I can see both of those things happening at our agency." <laughs> um, and yeah, and so I was like, okay. Um, but I will also say that sometimes agents just blow smoke. So maybe that's not true. And they were just trying to make me feel good about my book, which is 100% <laughs> something an agent would do. Um, so yeah, I, I, I have, I have friendships with agents, but I do feel like they are not like me. They are just, they're not like, they just work very hard and they, are doing so many deals with so many different kinds of people who have different values that they sort of have to like, and I, this sounds really like, it sounds worse than it is, I think, but they have to be really like 
able to change their worldview and their values based on which client they're talking to. Because each client wants something very different. And so their job is to provide like and to and to get into the mindset of this person and to give them the thing that they want, not just like because it's different for different people. It's not just money. It's not just fame. It's like, like the, what they, what they would be interested in is very different. And so you have to like chameleon yourself into different people's worldviews really easily. And that is, uh, and, and that's something that I think we all do sometimes. Like when we're having dinner with our in-laws, like we become slightly different people. Right. But, but like that's like their full-time job. And, uh, and I find that, I find that very interesting. And, and I, and I have had my, friends who are agents express like that sounds like like we're bad people and i'm like i don't think that it is that you're bad people i think that you're doing your job and you're like and and i think that we all have that capability um but like yeah it it can be read and and maybe should be read as a bit of a dick of a dickish <laughs> trait <laughs> um yeah but so what i was going to say is you know i do this podcast and i mostly talk to people who write books because that's what i'm interested in but i sort of think of books as being a little small potatoes these days compared to feature yeah. films and youtube mm -hmm. stars and stuff oh, yeah. like that but um but so this agent tells april like you got to write a book because there's still like certain there's a certain, certain cachet and certain advantages to writing a book even in this sort of new media um mm -hmm. environment yeah yeah, I think that, uh, and also like, so, so Jennifer is a, is a Hollywood agent, but like nowadays Hollywood agents are all about books because they know, especially in, in digital media where it's like, what is the product that we're going to sell besides like brand deals? Because if you can sell your own product, then that's good. And so like selling like, so, so, you know, they they have become and, and UTA and CAA, they have internal book departments now. For, specifically for their sort of more traditional celebrity clients to like write celebrity books. So, I mean, so when you told your agents that you were working on this book or close to finishing this book, were they really enthusiastic about that? Or like, how does that affect your, uh, I don't know, your brand or whatever, having a book out? Yeah. I mean, my, my, uh, the, the guy that I talk to most, I don't like, I don't have a personal agent, but like, if I did, it would probably be my friend Brent. And, uh, and he was just like over the moon. He's like, I think that a lot of people read this book and see it as pretty cinematic and like, like something that a screenwriter or a director would read and be like, yes, I see how this can be a movie. Um, and so he's very, like, he was very enthusiastic about the possibility of, of movie stuff. And I've told him that I need to not think about that right now. <laughs> so <laughs> I get a text from him like once every two weeks that's like, just by the way, still thinking about it, which is a very agent thing because they know that other people are also communicating with you and they don't want to lose that thing to someone else who was there at the right time, but they also don't want to over ask. It's a very interesting job. I'm fascinated by it. It's just kind of funny in the book because it's almost like a missile gap thing where uh, the agent says, like, Peter's got best-selling author in front of his name. We need best-selling author in front of your name. Yeah, and that's totally a thing. That is absolutely a thing. You know, when it's, like, sitting down there on the tagline and, it, and like, here's 23-year-old, like, like, internet person. And, you know, it's 2018, so you wouldn't think, like, that we would, we would make this distinction. But, of course, we do. Like, that if you're somebody who makes internet videos, you are not widely respected in the same way, which is why a lot of people, like, that's part of why a lot of people write books. And um, that, like, is not a good reason to write a book. Um, and I see a lot of, 
and April doesn't get into this because she's so like, like so in the public eye, but a lot of my internet friends always have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder about the fact that they're internet famous and, and like that, that doesn't kind of count for them. Um, and I think that part of that is that creative people always have a little bit of a hole that they're trying to fill up. And it turns out you can't fill up that hole. So your, your like monkey brain is always telling you reasons why you actually don't matter. Um, and, uh, and so like, that's just one, one more way that, you know, you can make a rationalization that like, yes, I have a huge audience and I have a, like a huge impact on people. And, but like, but I'm not like real famous and it, I, I find it, I find it to be annoying, but I understand it. I, I want to be sympathetic to people, but I also want to be like, like shake them and be like, you're a big deal. <laughs> Get used to it. Well, but I mean, that's a major, major preoccupation of this book is the the dark side of fame or the, you know, toxic or unrewarding side of fame. And so that must come mm -hmm. out of your experience somewhat, right? Yeah, my experience and watching the experience of, of my friends um, and especially my friends who, who started this when they were younger. Um, yeah, it. It is dehumanizing. I th I think like what I have come to terms to, and this is this happened because and while I wrote this book, is that seeking fame is seeking dehumanization. You and and like not in an abstract way, like not in and not in an accidental way. You are you are asking people and you are hoping that people will see you as more than human. And realizing that was really helpful for me to, to like make myself realize that like, this is not a thing that I want. I want, I, I want to be able to affect people. I want to be able to like, like marshal change and I want to like have power to do good with. But like the fame thing, the attention thing has to be like a tool with which to, to find influence and joy not a thing in itself that I, that I'm reaching for because the fame thing. And, and also I want to like try to break down the fame thing, especially with the people I have like the, like that I make content to the most um, because the, the fame thing is like asking people to have an idea about you where when they hear that you go to the grocery store and shop for food, they are surprised. <laughs> and like, when you think about the fact that like Brad Pitt, poops you're like that doesn't seem right that level of dehumanization is what you're going for if you want fame you want people to be surprised that you poop and that is really weird and like you shouldn't want that but i think that like ultimately that's a, like when people are going for fame for its own sake that's what they want they want to be dehumanized and but only in the good ways. And then when they find that they also get dehumanized in the negative ways, they're like, but what? Why? I, I'm just a person. And it's like, but you've been working so hard to have us not think you're a person. And that is a thing that I only realized because I wrote this book. I watched an interview where you said something about power that I thought was really interesting, where you said basically that with um, authoritarians and totalitarianism, there's this phenomenon you see over and over where uh, people will say, oh, well, this other group, they have power over us and they're oppressing us. And they're making our lives miserable. We need to get rid of them and mm -hmm. don't consider the fact that like, if we have the power to get rid of, to just completely get rid of this other group, are we, yeah. are they the ones who really have the power in this situation? <laughs>
Yeah, uh, like there, there is, there is nothing as terrifying as a powerful person who thinks they're powerless, and it is so liberating to feel powerless because it means that you're not responsible for any of the mistakes. It means that you you shouldn't experience shame for, for you know, for whatever shortcomings you imagine in your own life, and. And to be told that you are powerful then is an attack because it means that you, that like the story that you've told yourself about, about your, you know, about like whatever has like, whatever you perceive is not ideal about your life is, is then like, is that my fault then? And, uh, and, and so like the indulgent, the indulgence in powerlessness is such a thing right now. And, and, but also, like, it's really weird to, like, make a video and be like, hey, I just wanted to, like, recognize my power. Um, I'm wealthy and uh, especially globally. Like, if you compare me to rich people in America, maybe I'm not that rich. But, like, let's look at this thing, like, uh, among all humans because, like, that's probably the right way to do it. I have a tremendous amount of power just by virtue of the fact that I'm an American and that I get to vote in American elections. I'm extremely powerful. And – like you don't want that responsibility and even people who are famous don't want that responsibility like even Elon Musk doesn't want that responsibility he doesn't want to think he wants to be able to like both be his powerful self his billionaire self his extremely influential self but then when he says something nasty on Twitter he's like I'm just a person and I'm like no like everything about the rest of the ways that you act indicate that you want me to think of you not as just a person so why are you just a person in the moments where you make mistakes like either either I, I need you to be a person all of the time or or none of the time and and in our imagining and like this is another thing that I hope people people come to terms with like fame has been so fractured now that we do need to be more empathetic toward the powerful and that is a big ask. <laughs> Right, you know, I, I hate spending money, and so every time my girlfriend wants to buy something, I'm always like, "No, but you don't understand. Ninety percent of the people in the world don't have a new couch right now." She's yeah. pretty sick of hearing that. That argument. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I'm I'm probably on your girlfriend's side there. <laughs> um. So let's see. In in the, there's a part in the book where uh, April says uh, a friend of mine once told me that no matter how much you proofread the first time you open the final version of the book, you will find a typo <laughs> on the very first page you look at. So I was just curious if that happens with it, this book. It didn't. It didn't happen. It is a thing that I was very afraid of. <laughs> um, but it, it it is a thing that I've heard from a lot of authors. I I believe I I, I think I heard it first from Neil Gaiman. Uh, actually, speaking of Neil Gaiman, I, I watched a, a video where you uh, you were filming your bookshelf and talking about what's on your bookshelf. And you uh, there's a lot of uh, fantasy and science fiction authors that you mentioned. I, I guess I won't go through the whole list. People can watch that video <laughs> if, they, uh, if they want to. But let's see, you, you said that you did show this book to people like uh, Patrick Rothfuss and Hugh Howey to get yeah. uh, feedback on it. Yeah. Hugh Howey was my the first person who ever read anything from this book when it was like very new. Um, we met at a conference a long time ago. I, I want to correct myself because I wanted to check this. It's, it's actually, it's known as Gaiman's first law, uh, that, uh, picking up, uh, your first copy of a book you wrote, there is, if there is a typo, it will be on the page that the <laughs> book falls open to. Um, is there a second uh, or third Gaiman's? I don't know what the other Gaiman's laws are. Uh, I would, I, I should, uh, I should investigate. Um, 
Yeah, and Hugh was very helpful because it was so new and I was so new to the process that he was like he pointed to a point in the book where he was like, one, this is like the first decision that's being made by a character and it's early in the book and that is good and I like it and I like seeing this person make this decision. And it was the moment where Andy decides that he would rather April be on on camera than him. And he was like, that tells me a lot about this person. And then he also said, um, here is a point where I felt like I don't know, like that looks like an open door and I want to know how it gets closed. And so one, you need to know that you're going to close that door. And two, you like you need to know those moments where you're opening doors because like that's going to drive the plot forward and it's going to drive people to be really interested in it. And like that, like just just having like Hugh Howey commenting on my book was really affecting. And then Patrick like got a not a complete manuscript, but a very close to complete manuscript. And it's literally sitting next to me because I haven't moved it off my desk yet because it's like a prized possession where he is like, he like writes like, this is good. Or like, like you've used the wrong word. That word doesn't mean what you think it is. And like little like copy editor notes (laughs) along with like bigger notes. And then we had like a four hour, not four hour, but a long conversation about the book afterward in which he was like, it was extremely encouraging. Like, I, I mean, having Patrick Rothfuss th- like like your book is next level shit. You know. <laughs> well, so so since I do a podcast called Geeks Got to the Galaxy, obviously I'm a big fan of of this type of book, the comic science fiction. Um, mm-hmm. So like Douglas Adams, and I don't know if you mm-hmm. ever read Robert Asprin's um, Oh yeah, company books. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was just curious. Like, are, yeah, are you a fan of other sort of humorous uh, science fiction kinds of books? Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know if you've heard space opera, but it is a new humorous science fiction book that is very Douglas Adamsy, but also very 2018, uh, by Kat Valenti. That was one of my favorites of the year. I am also a fan of, you know, Aspirin is, is fantasy, um, in the, I don't know. Does he also do sci-fi? Yeah. Well, there's the myth series, which is fantasy. And right. then there's the Fool's Company series. Is yeah. Science yeah. 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 I've read a Fool's Company book, uh, but yeah, I've mostly read the, the myth series. Um, and, uh, and Scalzi can also sort of be in that camp for me. I'm a huge, I've probably read all of John Scalzi's work. Uh, and then, um, Oh, what, what was I going to mention? Oh, uh, this is not a novel, but F- Buffy the Vampire Slayer was a big, uh, a big sort of storytelling impact on me and the way that like you can have both like the absurd and the joyful mixed with the tragic and the terrible and the weight of the world. And it doesn't break that like those things can sit on top of each other. And instead of like not making sense together, they, they do somehow. And the, that, that thing is a big deal for me. And that's also like, that's also a full metal alchemist thing. I don't know if you've watched full metal alchemist, um, yeah, the anime, it, yeah. um, where like that, that the achievement of like having it feel so dire and important and the moments when terrible things happen hit you so hard, almost because there's this element of joy to it and, and ridiculousness and silliness. And like the, Instead of being like, well, it's silly. I'm not going to feel that bad if a character dies, but like it's silly and you do, you feel even worse. That is something that I think is really interesting about like when you can make that, that transition from comic to also like desperate, terrible need um, for, 
you know, like and, and grief, like that's amazing. And, uh, and is something that I'm, I'm a little bit in awe of in, in, you know, in, in Buffy and in Fullmetal Alchemist, which I think is a deeply underappreciated piece of art, um, that, you know, that I hoped to do a little bit of in this book. I mean, did you hit that, the tone that you wanted right away or was it sort of like not funny enough or too goofy and you had to sort of calibrate it and go back and tweak it and stuff like that? Yeah, it was too goofy. Um, it was too goofy in the beginning and it, it read very young, uh, I think ultimately, which, which, you know, wouldn't have been the end of the world, but, but also like April, like had gone too far in her life to be reading that young. Um, so yeah. So, so it, it, and like, and honestly, I, like, I don't think that I was able to achieve like that level of like, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Fullmetal Alchemist, like, uh, like juxtaposition there or like complimentary, like absurd with like tremendously real feelings. Uh, but maybe, cause like, I don't know, I don't get to read the book, uh, for the first time as it currently exists i uh yeah i and and i but like if i toned down anything it was the silliness so that i could like get at the themes more easily well i thought you went very deep with the characters here and and as you mentioned there's just a lot of suffering uh on the parts of the characters i mean because if, if people look at the cover they might expect the book to be sort of like on the surface a little bit more than it than it actually is mm. Don't ju- don't judge a book by its cover is a thing that I've heard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm glad I'm glad that you think so. And um, and yeah, I mean, I got very very attached to these characters, and um, and like, you know, had it was very hard to do some of the things that had to be done to them. <laughs> it's a weird weird thing to feel. And I remember I remember like reading J.K. Rowling saying like crying in the moments when when they when she wrote the scenes in which characters died and i was like eh really they're just characters like you've created them you don't have that emotional connection and now i'm like what a dick i was yes of course you do like you're as emotionally attached to these people as anyone and like obviously i cry while reading harry potter books so um yeah i uh i I totally cried while reading this book while writing the book well i would think especially after living with these characters for so long because it was a a number of years that you were working on this book, right? Yeah, I started in, in I think, 20, like maybe late 2013. Definitely was like into it in 2014, like actively working on it. Yeah. I thought, going back to your bookshelf for a second, I, I, I saw uh, something where you said that um, reading Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy when you were young had a big impression on you and made you want to go to Mars and to cure death. Yeah, that is a hundred percent accurate. I that is so Saxifridge Russell. If people who have read the Mars trilogy was, you know, I don't know if if uh, if the average person would read that character as like very sympathetic and like as a hero, but uh, I did and was uh, just obsessed with that character. I'm actually holding that book in my hand because I just took it down earlier today because I wanted to read what the uh, about the author said. Here's what the about the author says in the back of the... This is the edition that I had when I was growing up. Kim Stanley Robinson is the author of the Nebula and Hugo award-winning Mars trilogy. And then it goes to list uh, like six more of his books. And then it says, and other novels. He lives in Davis, California. And I'm like, that, like, that was the... 
that's how it was back then. Like we didn't know anything about authors. There were no podcasts. How how did like how did I find out anything about Kim Stanley, Kim Stanley Robinson <laughs> except reading this book? Like everything I knew about him was just like from like he was a person who created this thing. Anyway, um, I am a huge fan and remain like even reading it now. I'm like this is very very well done and holds up extremely well. But yeah, that that was uh, so like I wanted to be sax. I wanted to um, and like. What a, what an obvious set of goals for an ambitious young man. Like one, I want to like Neil Armstrong this shit and like be on another planet. Two, I want to not die and I want to be the person who did that for everybody else. So that uh, will give you some insight into the my um, the the fact that like the I have not uh, I have not come to my um, to having a healthy ego through being complimented by internet strangers. I was born that way. (laughs) Well, when you're talking about how before the internet, you didn't know anything about science fiction authors. I mean, that was certainly my experience growing up. And I can remember I actually found um, in, in, when I was in high school, I think I was like a, like a senior in high school. I mean, really late. I found there were some books in the school library that were interviews with authors and there were like Mm. hundreds of, uh, interviews and only sort of my eight or nine of them were with science fiction authors and I photocopied all those and took them home and put them in a, a filing cabinet so I could just read them that's over wonderful. and over and over again you know yeah that's uh, yeah that sounds like that sounds like the 90s <laughs> <laughs> um so one of the things I'm I go on about sometimes on this show is how I feel like fantasy and science fiction could replace religion in society and could offer, you know, these stories that have good lessons and everything, but don't Mm -hmm. uh, require you to believe things without evidence and and so on. Mm -hmm. So I was very, I felt validated um, in a conversation I saw. You said that Star Trek, the next generation is your religion. (laughs) That sounds like something I'd say. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And John Luke Picard is my God. (laughs) I, yeah, I mean, I, 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 that, I was deeply affected by that show and remain deeply affected by that show. Just the, the sort of like the gospel of human improvement, you know, like, like what's the point of life to be a better person today than I was yesterday. And, um, and like, no, you don't succeed at that every day, but, um, but like, yeah, I mean, I think that it got those messages across so effectively. And in a way that like, I don't think that that show could be successful today because maybe it's a little too earnest and maybe it's a little too slow and but like in a way that was so like captivating for me um but yeah i i i i wonder about how to replicate the systems of religion myself as a person who is a huge fan of community and like how do we gather and how do we create norms and how do we create taboos in a world where i like i I am aware that there is no God and that like God isn't telling me to go to this place once a week. And like what other force in the world would get me out of bed early on a Sunday than literal threat of damnation, like nothing. (laughs) And, and, and so like, I think there is like, there's a beauty to that, to that faith, to that belief that like it, it does, get you to do things that are good for you that you wouldn't otherwise do, like go to a building, hang out with your neighbors and talk about how to be a person. Um, and I, and so like how, and I, I think that there are, there are things that are serving some of the roles for people. And like, absolutely. I, I think that, um, that 
TNG in particular, but also lots of science fiction content did provide me with, I think Dune is, is another good example of like good um, ways to uh, imagine myself and like how, how to be a person. I think that like reading Dune again, I'm like, Oh, this has got some problematic bits, but, um, but you know, it was the seventies. So that's life. Um, yeah. So, so finding that, but like, I, but I still think that we are missing a piece that gathers us together and like finding that I think is really important. And I don't know what it is, but I, I'm very like, that's the thing that if, uh, if something distracts me from my current course, which I quite like, I'm very happy with my current course. Um, and like the, the things that I do for a living, it's just a, it's a good old, good old life. But if something distracts me from that, it will be the, like some way of, of having these experiences and, and having these conversations, but in, in a physical space. Yeah. I mean, in the same conversation, you said that about Star Trek, the next generation, you indicated that the Federation is sort of, um, you're not, uh, not believable or not realistic. And, and I wonder about that because, <laughs> you know, if you look at how, um, superstitious and bigoted the, the average person was 500 years ago compared to today, mm-hmm. it was like way, 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 you know, a, a huge improvement. And so then the question is, you know, how much more room for improvement is there, um, feasibly and how close? to that sort of ceiling are we right i guess i guess the thing that is difficult about the federation for me is that we like the examples we get of how to be a human in the federation are mostly command staff and that's not all but like even the people who aren't like at the top of the ladder in the flagship of the of the navy and exploration scientific arm of this massive multi-planetary federation like, so w- what we're seeing is the happiest or, or like not the happiest, but like the most f- successful people in the society, or we're seeing people who are, um, sort of like, you know, like, like fulfilling them. Like, I guess you see people who have fulfilled themselves in other ways, but you tend to see people who are at the top of their field in that show. And it makes me wonder about like the other people. And so like there, there is that storyline about Picard's relationship with the groundskeeper at the Academy that like a little bit provides a window into that. And that like Picard was the kind of person who would have this deeper relationship with, and like, and, and like a really like fundamentally important and connected relationship with someone who wasn't like a, someone who was a professor or like some authority figure. And, uh, and also that that person was satisfied and and like found a place in their life that was very important to to them and also to society and and that importance was recognized. But it like I I don't know like the thing that I I, I wonder about is like how do you create a society where everyone feels valued but also is still ambitious and um and I think that that universe is as close as we've gotten. It is just a, um, it, it is, it is a, and it is a excellent model for how ambition can work without the sort of need, like the sort of like ambition is there without the drive for collection of power or resources. And I love that it is some, in some fashion has like some unexplained way has become a post-capitalist society. And we don't think about the acquisition of wealth and like the Ferengi are hilarious and backward (laughs) because they do. And, but like, I, yeah, I, I don't, 
functionally know how it works. But of course, that's part of the, you know, like part of the reason it works is because like everyone just assumes, like everyone has the assumed knowledge that it does work. And so they don't have to talk about how the system works. And and I have read essays, my friend, about Hmm. how currency and value works in the TNG universe uh, on Earth. But um, but I don't know that I... And I'm I'm a I'm a fan of the fan theory, but I, it doesn't it hasn't quite worked for me yet. I talked for a long time about TNG just now, so if you want to save me? That would be great. I don't know if, <laughs> I don't know if this is making like endearing me to people or really isolating me from them. I th- I think our, our for our audience it's endearing uh, you to them. But <laughs> okay. what you were saying, like you know, when I was applying to colleges, this guy said something I've never f- forgotten, where he said, "When you go to visit a college, don't talk to the person giving the tour." to ask them what the college is like because that person is going to be like, this is the best school. We all love each Mm -hmm. other. He says, you know, go to the cafeteria and find the guy sitting there by himself sort of uh, stirring his uh, fruit loops, staring into the bowl. And so, yeah, Yeah. that makes me wonder, like, yeah, who is the person, the the person sitting at the table stirring their fruit loops in the Federation? And uh, what would that person have to say? Yeah, yeah. Because people are fundamental. Like, people, I think, I think part of human nature is being dissatisfied. Um. I think need is part of what I think need is what defines life, not just humans. Like I think that like like a human without need or want is just like does not doesn't compute. Yeah, because we're just biologically. Pro- like I was, I, I just interviewed Yuval Noah Harari, and he makes this point in his book. He says, you know, if you had a squirrel where and it found one nut and it was happier for the rest of its life, that squirrel <laughs> would not survive for very long. A right? pretty That's short life. V- yeah, <laughs> you were just not programmed to be content with what we have. Yeah. Um, all right, so we're pretty much out of time. So just uh, I understand there's a, a sequel to this book. You want to talk about that at all? I am working on a sequel. It uh, I, It's very hard to talk about without being spoilery of the end of the book. Uh, but I uh, – yeah, so the, the sequel is very entertaining to me – for me to write so far. And, uh, and it explores, I think, some themes of like not just what – the social internet is like today, but what it might be like in 10 or 20 years. And, uh, and I am a, and, and it is also told from the perspective of not just one person, but multiple people. Um, so we get, we get a lot of our, of, of our faves coming back to tell that story. So when did you know there was going to be a sequel? Like at what stage in the process? Uh, when I finished, like, so, uh, this is going to sound, um, I don't know if this is going to sound good, but I got to a point in the book where I was like, I think it's done, <laughs> but I hadn't told the whole story as I knew it yet. So I got, I, and I, and it was before I like wrote the, the finale. I was like, Oh, this is the climax. I'm there. I have to write the climax of the book now, but I haven't told the, the whole story. And I could do that thing where there's a climax and then you have like act four. And then you reintroduce and you have a 300,000 word book, but I didn't want to because I wanted to be done with a book. <laughs> so. I, mean, I think that's pretty common in publishing these days where, you know, they'll split a big book up into two books because it's just like this book is too big. You know, we need to yeah. get out of hand. Yeah. And, and also like it's like the even more than like, it was, certainly wasn't a note that I got from my editor, but like it had that arc. It was like, it did the three act structure. And I was like, I didn't even mean to. And, 
And then I was like, I mean, this is like clearly the, and then when I wrote the climax, I was like, oh, the book is over. <laughs> so <laughs> I knew that I, I knew that I had to write a sequel, uh, because, you know, honestly, because there's one scene that I didn't get into the book that is so important to me that I am, have, feel like I've been driving toward since I started the book and I just, I need that scene to exist. But also because people will finish the book and they will be like, okay, Hank Green, I need you to explain yourself. <laughs> um, I mean, do you have any um, any idea how soon the sequel will be out? I do not. Um, it might be a year. It might be two years. I don't think it will be longer than that. All right. Well, hopefully uh, hopefully sooner rather than later because I think a lot of people will be waiting to see uh, see what happens next. And so I think we'll have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Hank Green about his debut novel, An Absolutely Remarkable Thing. So, Hank, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. We went everywhere. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Hank Green for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Ernie4703, Silk Sambora, and B23EE. B23EE writes, One of my all-time favorites. This show is such a great mix of interviews and panel discussions about science fiction. I love the author interviews, and a lot of the recent ones have included some of my favorite authors like Peter Watts, Michael Bishop, and Neil Asher. When I listen to the panels, I often find myself nodding in agreement or laughing out loud at some of the comments that really hit the mark. I love it so much that I save up episodes so I can binge. So big thanks again to B23EE for that great review. Special thanks as well to everyone who supported us on Patreon, including Barbara Murphy and Tom Schuler, who both just increased their pledge amounts. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank Clay Temple Media for sponsoring today's show. Learn more about the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast over at claytemplemedia.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.